Thank you, Jesus, for this time here together. Thank you for the sunshine that's trying to break through. Uh, we thank you for your presence with us, Lord. You said that we're two or more gather in your name, which is what we're doing, that you are among us, Lord. So we ask that you would speak to us today through your word, um, through what you've done for us, God. We ask that you would make it alive for us, Lord. We ask that you would uh, just continue to bless us, draw us close to you. Uh, those who are far away and those who are near, Lord, we ask that you would bless us with your presence. Amen. All right, now you guys are like getting farther and farther away from me. I, I'm going to start taking this personally. This is, fortunately we got speakers though. So, all right, we, uh, we shared one of our victories with each other. And uh, I, we talked about wrestling over here, and uh, we talked about, I heard taxes over here, someone learning a language, and um, yeah, for me, I just, it was a short-term little immediate victory. I memorized a 10-verse passage, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, it's super good. I'm not going to do it right now in front of you, because I might not be able to do it with you here, but uh, yeah. Little victories, good to celebrate. And today we're looking at a great victory, a great victory that Jesus actually won for us. And I wonder if there was anybody there who shared a victory, uh, a victory you had for somebody else. Uh, there was Emmy is born, so that's a victory maybe for somebody else. Uh, but that's, that's kind of a twist on this, right? A victory for someone else. Jesus won a great victory for us on the cross. We're going to look at that today. Uh, it presented him with all authority in heaven and earth. And it's a victory primarily for you and me, not himself. We're going to see that in the book of Luke as we continue through uh, the story of Jesus, what he did, what he said. And um, this is a series that we started way back in January. Uh, it's even colder then. And we're going to finish up next Sunday, which is Easter. Yes, Resurrection Sunday. Yes, so we're excited about this. Uh, so let's go into the text and see this victory that Jesus won for us. We're going to start in Luke 19. We're going to cover a lot of ground. I would encourage you to get a bulletin because there is a part of that that you'd want to see um, in our message together. And if you just need one, raise your hand and somebody will bring a basket to you with a, a bulletin. All right, Luke 19, here it is. It's up here if you can see it. Luke 19, verse 28. After Jesus had said this, now the this there is the parable of the ten minas that he was telling the people that in and around Jericho. We looked at that last week. So after Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Jericho is below sea level, and you go up to, Jer up to Jerusalem, which is about 25 miles to the west. All right, so this is Jesus' third and final year of public ministry. All right, this is, we're getting to the apex, to the culmination of what he had come to do. This is his last visit to Jerusalem. And if you remember last week, there was great expectation and anticipation about what Jesus would do when he came into his city, the city of God, Jerusalem. They were expecting him to bring the kingdom, the rule and reign of God, in its fullness like that. And Jesus corrected them. He, he said, actually, first, 
there's a big step that needs to happen, and that step is I will be rejected, handed over, and killed. So they, they're dealing with this tension, and he's corrected them, but they're still not really kind of grasping it. All right, so Jesus is going up to Jerusalem, and on the way, he sends his disciples to get him a ride. Now, if you are a conquering king, if you're going to bring your rule and reign to a place, what kind of ride are you going to be on when you go into that city? What would you choose? I would choose something big, strong, a nice, meaty war horse, right? And that's the typical thing, right? That's what Caesar rode. That's what his generals rode. That's what Herod's troops rode, all right? Big, powerful war horses. Jesus goes and sends his disciples to get a donkey. And not just a donkey, like a young donkey, all right, he's bringing this to another level. So, you know, not as intimidating, not as impressive. And so, you know, Jesus throughout his ministry and what he's been doing and how he's been using his power and authority has been showing us that. But this difference is exactly what God had planned. We know that he planned it beforehand because he foretold it to his prophets. He laid out throughout the prophets, he gives us glimpses of what his kingdom is going to look like when he sends the king, of what the king is going to look like. And so we have these images that are given to us throughout the prophets, and one of them is in Zechariah. And this, this was given to his people Israel about 500 years before Jesus came and was riding into Jerusalem. Let's read it. Zechariah chapter 9, 9 through 10. It's about 520 B.C. The word is, rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. That's a way of referring to Jerusalem. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you. So it's looking ahead to this moment when Jesus comes into Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious. All right, and then you're thinking, oh, what is this going to look like? And then he says, humble and riding on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river, the Jordan River, to the ends of the earth. So this is God's plan. And Jesus is walking it out. Jesus rides into Jerusalem. He's unarmed. And he's riding this humble donkey. Okay, Luke 19.36. As he went along, as Jesus went along, people spread, picture this, spread their cloaks on the road, like a red carpet for a king. Um, in other passages we have that they, they took palm branches or leafy uh, branches and laid them down on the road like a red carpet for the king. That's why we call this Palm Sunday. When Jesus came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, down the Kidron Valley, up to Jerusalem, when he got to that place where the road goes down, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. All the things that God had been doing those three and a half years. Healing people, 
raising people from the dead, opening the eyes of the blind, releasing the oppressed, praising him for those miracles, and saying, blessed is the king. They're seeing Jesus come. They're, putting, they're connecting the dots. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. There's excitement. There's anticipation. Jesus is coming into his city. Jesus is bringing his rule and reign. So a lot of commotion, a lot of excitement, a lot of cheering. But not everyone is happy. Not everyone is happy. Verse 39. Some of the Pharisees... These are the religious influencers, the religious leaders. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd who've been having uh, conflicts with Jesus all along the way said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. They see what they're doing. They don't like it, right? The disciples and many of the crowd, they see that Jesus is the king. These religious leaders are rejecting him. Quiet your disciples. And Jesus responds, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones around here will cry out. The stones will cry out, blessed be the name of the one who comes in the name of the Lord. So in other words, God has brought his king. The king has come. And you cannot stop it. You may not like it. You may choose to reject it. But you cannot change the fact of who Jesus is and what he's doing. And this divide between those who accept and see and receive Jesus as king and those who reject him and want to get rid of him, that divide has been rising, rising for these three and a half years and it's reaching its point of no return. Here it is, verse 47. Jesus stayed in Jerusalem uh, this week, during the week, and every day he was teaching at the temple. But the chief priests, so the other religious leaders, those who are in charge of the temple, uh, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill them. All right? Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. People knew they were hearing the voice of God when they heard Jesus speak. He taught with power and authority like nobody else. So the leaders want to silence Jesus permanently, but the crowds want more. They want to hear more. This is, you know, when Jesus was on the scene in the flesh. And the same is today. The same is today. A uh, couple weeks ago, Ian and I went out. We go out once in a while. And we try to engage people in spiritual conversations and talk about Jesus. And we do this. We've done it. Every time we've done it, there are some people who just are not interested. There are some people who are just too busy. There are some people on their phones and they don't even respond. You know, I, I'm not saying we're Jesus, so maybe if we were Jesus, uh, they would respond a little differently. But we are, you know, in his name going to talk to people about him. And then there's some people who will engage and are open and are interested and we have good conversations. And um, there is, there's this other group that will even knowingly, you know, aware of who Jesus is, just kind of flat out reject him. We talked to this couple 
um, two weeks ago, Broadway Plaza, and they knew about Jesus. And they said, hold on, hold on, hold on. We believe Jesus is just another teacher like Muhammad or Buddha. We don't believe any of this other stuff. And so, you know, I'm listening to this. And I said, well, um, would you say a good teacher tells the truth? Is that a qualification of a good teacher? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so he tells the truth. And so I said, do you know what Jesus claimed about himself? And they're like, well, you know, he claims lots of things. And I said, well, he claimed to be the Son of God, the Messiah, God with us, one with the Father, the one who has the authority to forgive sins. And, you know, just left them with that, right? So there's this, there's this rejection out there. There's this prejudgment against Jesus. And it was back then, and it's now. And all we can do is share, and hopefully some of that truth settles in, takes root, and you never know. Ten years from now, you never know. Anyway, so we're, we're back to this divide. Those who accept Jesus, those who are curious, who are trying to explore and understand more, and those who are flat out rejecting him. So, back to Luke 20, 22, verse 1. Now the festival of unleavened bread, called the Passover, was approaching. Now, Jesus intentionally, as God planned it, is in Jerusalem during one of the big three festivals during the year. It's one of the biggest. It's the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Festival of Unleavened Bread. It's a week long, and the, the high point of it is the Passover meal. All right, so during these big festivals, uh, Jerusalem at that time was about 100, 120,000. These are rough estimates. And at the time of these festivals, it would swell up to at least a million people. That's like a conservative estimate. So you got Jews, not only who live there in surrounding Israel, but also from the surrounding area, from the diaspora where they were dispersed um, previously and they lived outside of Israel. So they come back in during this time. So it's a big deal. Uh, and the big moment is the Passover meal. And they've been doing this pretty much when they could every, every year since 1400 B.C., the first Passover. Now, what was the first Passover about? Because the context is very critical to what Jesus is going to do here. It's during the Passover time. What was the Passover? Do you remember? It, it's, it, it's practicing the law here, yeah? Yeah, so Israel... Uh, was multiplying in Egypt as a people, and another pharaoh came to power, and he enslaved the Hebrews. They were becoming too numerous, and he was on a power trip. And so he enslaved these Hebrews and mistreated them, and they cried out to God, and God raised up Moses, sent him to Egypt to release his people from slavery to Egypt. And how did he do it? What was the mechanism? You're getting ahead of us. What's that? Plagues, yeah. God brought multiple levels of punishments on Egypt because Egypt refused to just let Israel go. They started off pretty light, and then they got heavier and heavier and more intense. And then the tenth plague was God was going to warn them, forewarn them, I'm going to bring down death on the firstborn of every living thing in Egypt. 
That's God's punishment, his justice for this obstinate rebellion and rejection of God's voice. All right? But God made a way for people to not have to feel and receive that punishment. What was it? Blood on the lamb. All right. So you kill a lamb. You take the blood of that lamb. It's weird, right? You take the blood of this lamb and you put it on the doorpost. The, what's the cross part called? The lintel? Anyway, the doorposts of your house. And this destroying angel would come. And if the blood was over the house, the blood of the lamb was over this house, this destroying angel would pass over and the judgment would not come down on that house. But if you didn't have the blood of the lamb, you got wiped out. The firstborn was killed there. So this happened. At this point, most of Egypt did not do this. Most of Israel did do it, and God led them out. Egypt was finally like, get out of here. You know, your, your God's too powerful. Go. So this is the context. This is what they're celebrating 1,400 years later. God brings them out. He forms them into his people. All right, back to verse 22, uh, 22, verse 1. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread, called the Passover, was approaching. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Like the people were all going over to Jesus. They were used to being the center of religious life, the center of that, of God worship there. And everybody's going to Jesus. They feel threatened. They're, they're discomforted by this. So um, they want to get rid of Jesus. So we're going to come back to the Passover meal that Jesus had with his disciples. But first, let's fast forward after the meal Jesus has with his disciples. After the meal, he goes out to pray with his disciples. Jesus knew what was coming next. And he needed to get away with the Father and his disciples and pray. So he does that. And while Jesus and his disciples are praying, Judas at the same time is leading temple guards to arrest Jesus. All right? And they come. And it's in the middle of the night. This is late Thursday night. And Jesus was arrested. And he was brought to the home of the high priest, the ruling religious leader, to be questioned face-to-face -face away from the crowds. All right, so let's go there. Verse 54. Then seizing Jesus, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. The men who were guarding Jesus began mocking him and beating him. They blindfolded him and de demanded, prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. Verse 66, at daybreak, so this is early, early Friday morning, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together. All right, this is not a legal assembly. They're doing this out of um, convenience. They're trying to quietly get rid of Jesus. They met together, and Jesus was led before them. And they interrogated him. And it came down to verse 67. If you are the Messiah, the King, the promised one, they said, tell us. And Jesus answered, if I tell you, you, would, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer. 
Jesus has been showing them over and over for the past three years that he is the Messiah. He is the promised one. But they refuse to believe him. Verse 69, but from now on, Jesus continues, the Son of Man, and that is a messianic title from Daniel 7.13, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked him, are you saying then that you are the Son of God? And they're putting together Psalm 2, which puts together this uh, king with the divine son. Are you then the son of God? He replied, and this is a little bit cryptic. Jesus replied, you say that I am. And Jesus, throughout his ministry, is trying to help people get to that place where they can see and acknowledge that he is the one. He's the son of man. He's the Messiah. He's the son of God. And so he gives them that. And they pick up on this. They know what he's saying. Verse 71, then they said to him, why do we need any more testimony? We've heard it from his own lips. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. They realize he's claiming to be God. They consider that blasphemy because they reject his claim. And they're going to bring him to Pilate, the Roman governor, to be executed. The Roman governor is the only one at that time that had the power to execute somebody. So they brought him to Pilate. Who does Jesus think he is? He's the Messiah, the promised one, the king of the Jews, the one God promised to send. And the leaders are rejecting him, just like Jesus said they would. He prepared his people. He prepared his disciples. He prepared us for this. The prophets prepared us for this reality, that he would be rejected, he would be killed, and on the third day, raised again. It's operating as God planned it. All right, so there's a lot more details there, but let's fast forward to verse 33. When the Roman soldiers led Jesus out to be crucified outside the city gates there. Verse 33. When they came to the place called the Skull, or Golgotha, they, they called it that because it's a, it's a rock outcropping that looked kind of like a skull. <clears throat> when they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there, along with two criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. And there was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. It was about noon that afternoon, I'm sorry, it was about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. Just darkness came during the midday. For the sun stopped shining and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had breathed his last, and then he had breathed his last. And that brings us face to face with this picture. And it's in your bulletin. This one, I mean, you go to Europe and the, the cathedrals everywhere, they're filled with the image of Christ crucified, Christ on the cross. This moment that we've just read about. Jesus, you know, you may not like the artist, but... I want to encourage you to look at what we have here. What is God?
displaying to us? What is God showing us? What does God want us to see and perceive in Jesus the King, the Son of God, the eternal Word of God made flesh, dead on a cross? What are your first impressions? You're so far away, I got to come close. A sacrificial lamb. So Slogin is saying she's seeing here this son of God as a lamb who is sacrificed. And that sacrifice in the old covenant with Israel is what appeased for God's wrath or satisfied God's wrath for their sin. Is a substitute, um, a sacrificial substitute so that God's wrath, God's punishment for sin wouldn't have to come on us, but could come on this animal, which was all pointing to Jesus, this once-for-all sacrifice. Yeah, there's a lot there. That, that's huge, right? Yeah. What else do we see here? It's a horrible, it is a horrible way to die. It's humiliating, right? He's, he's practically naked. All right. Now, we think the Romans and the Jews had a, a little bit of a, uh, the Romans compromised a bit in crucifixion. Usually, when you're crucified by the Romans, this was a way to just torture and humiliate um, opposition. They would have you be completely naked. But the Jews were very modest people, and we think they made an accommodation for Jesus. We're not sure, though. I mean, it, obviously, he is exposed. This is humiliating. Um, it's defeat. Right? This is, this is defeat by the Roman powers. Right? The king, the king of the Jews, it says above his head, crucified this horrible, humiliating death. But the message, Wade, is called Jesus' victory. So what is going on? Atonement, yeah. Yeah, we're going to talk about atonement here. I'm going to go. His humanity, flesh and blood, right? God in the flesh, the eternal word of God made flesh for us. Let me, let me zero it in a little bit more. What does this tell you about humanity? What does this tell you about us? The king, the creator God, comes in the flesh to be king, to be received as king. And this is what we did with him. It exposes something about humanity. We hated our creator. We've rejected, we've rebelled against our creator. It goes back to Genesis 3. God has given us free will, freedom to choose, right? to choose our own way, and in that choice, we've misused that and rejected our good creator, his rule and reign, his authority, his claims on us. We're rebels. This is what we deserve for our sins. That gets back to atonement and the sacrifice for sins. We are all with sin. All of us have sinned. 
All of us have lied at some time. All of us maybe stolen something at some time. You know, been greedy, been selfish. Um, you know, the target that God created for us is to love one another as ourselves, to love each other as much as we love ourselves, and to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We have missed that target. We sin. We sin this week. We may have sinned this morning, right? We will probably sin later today in some small way. These sins separate us from God. And God is just. God punishes sin. So we see here the, the wrath of God, the punishment of God on sin. This is God's justice for sin. Not Jesus' sin because he was sinless, but our sins. So we deserve punishment for our sins. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. He came and offered himself willingly as the sacrifice for our sins to pay its punishment in full so that you and I would not have to and so that we could be reconciled to God. Let's look at a couple of ways that Jesus talks about it. Uh, Matthew 20, 28. This is Jesus talking about himself. The Son of Man, he said, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom, a ransom payment for many. His death pays the price for our sins to release us not from slavery in Egypt, but from sin and death. And then this goes back to about 700 B.C., this next passage. This is Isaiah speaking of Jesus's, this moment of Jesus on the cross. Listen to what it says beforehand just to prepare people so they wouldn't be surprised and so that they would realize this was God's plan. Isaiah 53, speaking of Jesus, says, He was despised and rejected by mankind. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem, Jesus on the cross. But what was really going on is he was pierced for our transgressions, our sins. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace with God was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We are healed. We are restored to God. We are set right with God. We see on the cross God's loving mercy toward us and God's justice. God will not tolerate sin. Now, what happens... If you don't take hold of this great sacrifice for yourself, what are the options? If you don't say, thank you, Jesus, for bearing my sins for me on the cross, what's going to happen to you? You'll have to bear them yourself. Yeah. 
God has come to rescue us from that fate, from that certain fate. How do we receive that? How do we receive that gift? How do we appropriate it for ourselves? Yeah, confessing our sins. Acknowledging, yes, I am sinful. I have fallen short of your great standard to love God, love others. I have fallen short. Thank you, Jesus, for paying this, this punishment for me. I deserved it. I'm guilty. And thank you. I receive it. I put my trust in what you have done for me. And I thank you. And that is your righteousness. That puts you in right standing with God. This is what Jesus tells us to do. So if you want to receive that today, I'll give you an opportunity now to do that in communion. Communion is a way for us to receive what Jesus has done for us. And this takes us back to the Passover meal that Jesus had with his disciples before he went to the cross. And in this Passover meal, he does something new, something unexpected. He doesn't follow the typical pattern. He changes it and applies it all to himself. So if you want to receive communion with us uh, right now, make sure you've got a little cup. And if you don't, just raise your hand and we'll get one to you. I'm going to read verse 14 from Luke uh, chapter, I believe it's 23, 22, 22, 14. All right, this is back at that Passover meal with his disciples. Jesus said, or here we go, verse 14. When the hour came for the Passover, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. During the process of this meal, he took bread at one point. And this deviates from uh, the usual routine that they had for the Passover dinner. He took bread. He gave thanks for it. He broke it. And he gave it to them. He offered it to them and said, Take and eat. This is my body given for you. This symbolizes my body broken and given for you. So if you want to receive that, take your bread and join me now. After this, he, he took the cup. He gave thanks for it. He offered it to them and saying, drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this in remembrance of me. They're tricky, right? I'm going to pray for us while you're continuing that. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your great sacrifice for us. The victory you won for us. The victory over sin. The victory that separated us from God you have overcome. We thank you, Jesus, for sacrifice for us, Lord.
And of course, the good news is that that image of Jesus on the cross, the story did not end there. If it had, we wouldn't be talking about him 2,000 years later. Um, but here's, here's a teaser of what's coming. And this, too, is in that Isaiah passage. This is in Isaiah 53, this verse 11, talking about that suffering servant. It says, after he has suffered, he will see the light of life. He will see the light of life. He's looking ahead to that third day. And that's next week where we're going to celebrate Jesus overcoming death, the firstborn from among the dead. And uh, we'll get there next week. Let me pray again for us. Lord God, we thank you for this time together. Uh, we thank you for your presence now with us. We thank you that we can go freely, uh, come freely into your presence now because of what you did for us, Lord. We thank you for tearing the veil that stood between us and you. Uh, we thank you for um, this sacrifice of yours, this loving sacrifice, Jesus. You did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, Lord. We praise you and just invite you all to stand now. And we're going to sing about it in this last song.